Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Ellen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guests are Tal Linzen and Afra Ali Shahi, who are cognitive scientists joining us today, talking about a workshop that they co-organized at EMNLP last year, 2018. Tal is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, and Afra is an associate professor at Tilburg University. Uh, Tal and Afra, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Matt. Today we wanted to talk about the, this workshop, because from my perception, it was one of the most well-attended and most well-liked workshops at EMNLP. I was a part of it, and I liked it a lot. So we wanted to hear what you had to say about what you thought of it. So can you tell us at a high level, like, what was this workshop about? Motivation for the workshop is that we have a new generation of models in NLP that are based on neural networks. And those models seem to work pretty well in general, but we don't understand why they work so well, how they work, and what their limitations are. And that's a bit of a situation uh, that's new in comparison to previous generations of models where uh, we understood a lot better how they worked internally. So the goal of this workshop was to bring together people who are trying to understand how these models work, coming from different perspectives, including machine learning and uh, linguistics, psychology and neuroscience and so on. So what do you think cognitive science, like uh, as I said at the beginning, both of you are cognitive scientists. Um, what's the cognitive science angle here? How does this fit into understanding neural nets? Well, it seems that a lot of the current architectures are actually much more suitable for simulating the tasks that humans do well. So it would be really interesting to see what kind of information or what kinds of linguistic knowledge are useful for these tasks. So what is it that these models actually learn in order to perform the kinds of tasks that humans perform well? So I think our personal uh, interest in this topic are both on our side, me and Dregos Khopaba, and on Tal's side was to understand better the kinds of representations that these models form, which we don't have direct access to. So it would be great if we can actually develop a set of techniques for making these kinds of representations more explicit in order to be able to get a better understanding of what kinds of representations are also more plausible for humans to rely on. We thought that the cognitive science motivation behind this approach was a bit more pressing than the practical motivation for opening the black box because as long as the model does what it's supposed to do, many people are not necessarily concerned about how these models work. But actually the reaction, the response that the, we received to the workshop kind of proved us wrong because we got submissions and also attendance from a very wide range of audience, so it seems that at least in theory, many, many people are interested in knowing how neural networks work and what the internal structure looks like and what kind of representations they use, even if they're not necessarily interested in how human brain works. I would also add that there are maybe a couple of things that cognitive science can help with. So I think what um, Afra talked about was mostly why understanding how neural networks work is urgent for cognitive science, but uh, which I totally agree with. But in the other uh, direction, I think that cognitive scientists, and if you think of linguistics as a part of cognitive science, which is uh, a, a very Chomskyan tradition is to think of linguistics as part of cognitive science, that we are uh, have a lot of experience and care a lot about 
characterizing the task um, very well. Um, so I think we have experimental uh, paradigms that tell us exactly what people are able to do and what they're unable to do, what the, the, the very detailed breakdown of errors that people make. And I think that all of this deep understanding of the task, what it really means to understand the structure of a sentence or to interpret a sentence, is something that is very developed in cognitive science and maybe a little bit less in NLP. So that's something that I, I felt in the workshop that uh, the workshop really benefited from cognitive scientists. And the, the other thing that's not so much cognitive science tr traditionally uh, construed, but more cognitive neuroscience maybe, is that the challenge of having a large number of real numbers represent whatever you're trying to represent so he, uh, is the same challenge that cognitive neuroscientists are faced with when they try to analyze fMRI data. Right? So fMRI data is just a bunch of numbers and we need to make sense of them and connect them to what we think the representation in the brain might be. Um, so again, I think that that tradition can be applied to analyzing artificial neural networks in the same way that we analyze neural networks in the in the brain. Yeah, I guess to rephrase just a little bit, using a phrase I think I got from Utah, cognitive scientists have a lot of experience trying to probe something that is a black box that has language capacity, which is a human, right? And right. so we can use those methods to try to also probe these other black boxes that um, have apparently or may have some kind of language capacity. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Sorry, I haven't attended the workshop, so I, I, I have a hard time like imagining uh, what, what's an example of, of those methods. Could you give an example? So there, is a, there were actually a few families of techniques that repeated themselves in terms of themes that we saw in the submissions and also in the invited talks. I think the invited talks were actually great examples of different approaches to trying to tackle this problem. Don't you agree, Tal? So we had formal methods for analyzing the internal representations of neural networks. We had the general approach that now people can't really agree on how to call them, but there are various labels used for them, like diagnostic classifiers or probing techniques or auxiliary tasks, which basically takes these internal representations and then feeds them to some other downstream tasks, many of them cognitively motivated. But we also had submissions which proposed techniques for trying to structurally map the internal dynamics of networks to what we know about human brain, for example, just taking the brain imaging data and taking the word embeddings or sentence embeddings that we extract from artificial neural networks and trying to map these two structures that their, their representations are projected on and see whether there are structural similarities in this projection. I think maybe Tal can uh, talk a little bit more about the role of formal linguistics and artificial languages. Yeah, so I, I think that um, there are experiments that people did with uh, synthetic data that were quite interesting in that th that's something that maybe you don't see as much in uh, NLP, but would be would be nice to see more because you you can really uh, design a simple and controlled language to test a hypothesis about the learning uh, capabilities of a particular model. And we had a few um, papers that analyzed how RNNs can learn context-free languages, for example. So 
we have this theoretical assumption uh, that language is fundamentally a context-free language or some mild exp extension of that uh, formalism. So in principle, if we want to model language in the way that we think in linguistics, it's a uh, model, we need to be able to model as many levels of embedding, for example, as uh, an infinite number of levels of embedding, right? So in natural language, you don't have a lot of cases of that, so you go to a synthetic language and see how well uh, if you can learn in that case. And I think you can derive theoretical results that are maybe not immediately applicable to NLP, but are still quite interesting about the limitations of RNNs in generalizing to uh, more deeply embedded structures, for example, than they see in training. So that's on, on the side of s synthetic data. You can control the training data very well and see how the network generalizes outside of the training data so to understand its inductive biases. But I think that there, there are also interesting uh, experiments with real languages that were also about uh, generalization. So you train um, an RNN language model on English and English corpus, and then you see how it generalizes to constructions that indicate how well it learned uh, various syntactic rules. So if it learned uh, filler gap dependency, we had a really nice um, talk about that or if it learns the agreement dependencies between different elements of the sentence. Uh, Can you give us a little more detail on like filler gap and, uh, and these other tests? I think a lot of our listeners probably don't have a strong linguistics background and could benefit from understanding a bit more. Yeah, so um, when you ask uh, questions in English, there are certain things that you're not grammatically allowed to ask questions about in a sentence. So let's say the original sentence is, I ate pizza and cookies. Then you're not allowed to, by the rules of the English grammar, and the English grammar police will arrest you if you ask the question, what did you eat pizza and? To mean, what is the thing that you ate in addition to pizza? So that seems like a pretty arbitrary restriction. Why are you not allowed to ask that question? What did you eat pizza and? Because you can ask questions like, um, what did you eat your pizza with? Very similar questions are fine, but that particular question isn't fine. It's a bit puzzling because we don't have any explicit evidence that those questions are wrong. Like, no one ever tells us that. And if you train a language model on a corpus, it's not going to get explicit evidence that that's an ungrammatical question. So it needs to infer the fact that it's ungrammatical from other aspects of the corpus. Uh, and that which is what humans do as well. But that's that's a generalization task. You ask the model uh, whether it can detect that something is uh, grammatical or ungrammatical, even though it didn't see it at all in training. And humans have uh, very clear judgments about this kind of uh, sentence. How do you actually ask the model that? Do you have like some training data to say grammatical or not, or use some threshold? Like, what do you do? So there is. The transfer approach, which you just mentioned, where you have some, uh, when you fine-tune the model on uh, uh, some examples of grammatical and ungrammatical sentences. But I think that the more interesting cases, when you manage to set the task up as a comparison between the probability of two sentences, and you show that the probability of the grammatical sentence is higher than the probability of the ungrammatical one. So, for example, in the case of subject-verb agreement, you can test whether after the words, the books on the table, the language model assigns a higher probability to are than to is, because books are plural. Um, 
So that's you don't need to train the model to do any additional task. You just look at the probability distribution that it generates over the vocabulary. That doesn't really tell you anything about grammaticality, right? Or does it? Because you could imagine the system still might have some sense of grammaticality, like it might give a, say these are probabilities, right? And it gives, say, 20% probability to R and 19% probability to is. Mm -hmm. It still basically thinks both of them are equally grammatical, even though it ranks one of them higher. So what do you, what do you make of that? That is a very legitimate um, objection. I hope that the difference between these two verbs that are equally uh, semantically plausible in the context, the, the only possible difference between them is in whether one is grammatical and the other one isn't. So it's possible that the network is not learning a categorical distinction between grammatical and ungrammatical sentences. I would have to say that we don't have very strong evidence that humans have a categorical distinction between grammatical and ungrammatical sentences. That's a dirty secret in psycholinguistics. The fact that it shows a difference between these two words that are matched for all of their other properties indicates that it learned something about the grammar of English. It might not be a categorical distinction, but, but that gradient distinction is grammatical. Okay. Yeah, there, there have been a lot of papers recently, some of them at Black Box NLP, some of them at other places that look at these probing tasks to try to say, like, what kinds of phenomena do our pre-trained language models like BERT or ELMO or whatever, COVE, do they capture grammar? And that's been a really big trend recently, and we've learned some interesting things from it. Afra, were there any other high-level trends that you saw at the workshop that you want to talk about? Yes, actually, since you mentioned these diagnostic classifiers, there were a bunch of papers that tried to argue against them, which started a very interesting conversation. I personally found it very helpful and very informative. So there were, specifically, I can think of two papers, one by Zhang and Bauman, and uh, the other one by Naomi Safra and Adam Lopez. So these were actually both extended abstracts at our workshop, but now the extended versions of those work are available on archive. Both of them try to show that there are limitations to what these diagnostic classifiers can show. And there was also some work before that, but because these two were presented at the workshop and we are talking about this workshop, I'm mentioning them. The main idea is that, so specifically the, the work of John and Bauman shows that even if you use a randomly initialized LSTM and then take their activations on the hidden layers and then try to train some classifier, for example, for part of speech tags, you will get above chance accuracy. So that means that probably it's just that this layer is, you know, hidden layers are still carrying some of the information which is already included in the word embeddings and therefore, you know, you don't really, can, you can't argue that the, tra the model had to learn some particular type of information in this particular part of speech tags because it showed up in the performance of the diagnostic classifier. So you have to take these results with a grain of salt. And it's, you know, point is well taken. In the work of uh, Safra and Lopez, they were suggesting some other techniques that look at the correlations between the kind of representation that you get in, say, a language model that's trained uh, specifically for predicting the next coming word and a similarly structured, architectured model which learns to actually predict the next part of speech taxi. And then if you project these the internal representations of these two models and try to look at the correlations between the two, maybe that's a more reliable key or signal than if you actually take the internal representations and feed them as an input. 
the classifier and train that classifier to specifically probe a particular encoding of a kind of linguistic uh, information. So I think that's a, I mean, I think the jury is still out. It's not really clear formally what strengths and weaknesses of each of these two approaches are. But I think this is something that we should all take into account when, because now using all sorts of diagnostic classifiers, or not necessarily classifiers, all sorts of predictions that you make based on the activation layers of a particular model that's trained on a certain task. We all use them very liberally, and maybe we shouldn't really be, you know, jumping to conclusions if we get some above-chance performance in this problem task. Yeah, that's really interesting. We had a project recently with a student who was trying to do some additional probing kinds of stuff. And after seeing some of this work and talking to folks at ACL and EMNLP, we decided we needed something better than just performance on the task. Because as you say, if you imagine you have a whole lot of training data in the the probing task, Mm -hmm. then your classifier could just be learning something from random vectors from from the training data itself, right? Yeah. And so the the way we approached this was we said let's look at random as a baseline and then like uh, and get some upper bound and then look at improvement over random as evidence that it's learning something. It is important to keep in mind that there is a lot already encoded in the word embeddings independently of tasks that the model is actually optimized on. And this really easily gets translated from one layer to another. So it's hard to pull apart these two from each other. This also can cause problems in the other approach. So if you look at the correlations, it could be that the you know, part of speech tiger still is keeping a lot of lexical information, which might not necessarily be relevant to the task that is optimized. But that, that kind of lingering information causes the correlations to blow out of proportion. Uh, so it's important to set up the experiments properly and use really informed baselines, not just, you know, the maximum. Yeah. So I think in this context, the paper that got the best paper award at the uh, workshop was very interesting. That's by Mario Giulianelli and other people. The issue that I think that they started to address in that uh, paper is when we uh, show that diagnostic classifier performs above chance, that means that the information exists in the internal representation of the model, but it doesn't yet show that the model is using that information in the next layer. So traditionally, the idea of an internal representation has to have two components. First, you have to have the information encoded, but then you also have to have a downstream consumer of that information that is able to use it. And we don't necessarily know that just from showing that the diagnostic classifier performs above chance. But what they did in their paper, which I thought was pretty interesting, was to try to back propagate uh, information through the diagnostic classifier back to the original layer that you're trying to diagnose, and then see if changing the original layer according to what the diagnostic classifier tells you to do changes the behavior of the original model. Then you can be more confident that the model is, in fact, using the information that the diagnostic classifier is picking up on. Um, So I thought that that was a a really nice um, approach. Can you explain this a little more? So I have, say, a pre-trained language model, and then I'm doing a diagnostic classifier on, say, filler gap dependencies, and then I'm fine-tuning, backpropping through my language model itself, 
And then I'm saying if my model changes a lot, that means there's stuff there. Well, okay, I'm trying to understand the, the conclusion. Yeah, so, so what the, the thing that you are doing is you're telling your diagnostic classifier what the correct answer is, and then you are trying to see how you would need to change the hidden layer of the language model such that diagnostic classifier gets the correct answer from the hidden state of the language model. Let's say that diagnostic classifier is predicting that the current part of speech is verb, but you know that it should be noun. So you're trying to understand what you need to change in the original state of the language model such that the diagnostic classifier gets the correct uh, part of speech. And then you see if changing the original hidden layer accordingly improves the behavior of the language model. They were basically proposing an intervention mechanism. So instead of trying to fiddle with your model, try to use an external tool to see where you can intervene halfway through the training in order to get the you know, training back on track. Basically, this was one of the interesting answers to the question, so what? So this, is, this was a recurring theme that a lot of people had experienced. If you work on these kinds of analysis methods, you get usually in the reviews to your paper. So what is it good for? I mean, okay, so now we know that this kind of information is probably represented. How can we use this kind of information? And this particular paper was actually trying to suggest one way of using back this meta information or what kind of information is encoded in the network to bring it back into the original task training and try to reset the activation layers on the right track and see whether it actually improves the performance of the original task. Okay, I'm still trying to understand how this is. It, it, is this the same as like standard fine tuning on some end task? Like what is different here? Well, you have, a, you have an original end task, right? You have the language modeling objective, right? But then you have this side branch that you have a classifier that feeds off your original model. And you're basically trying to use the output of this classifier to intervene in the adjustment of the weights of your original language model in order to perform the, the better in the original. To do better language modeling? So this is like multitask training? Yeah, it is. In, in idea, it is similar. It's just the setup is different, right? So you don't have these two parallel tasks that you are actually optimizing at the same time. You are focusing on one of them, but you're using the second one as an occasional tuning technique. Okay. For me, the, the part that was exciting about that paper is not that it gives you a way to do multitask learning by direct supervision of the uh, internal representation as opposed to the like, softmax layer, say. But that it gives you evidence that the model is, in fact, using the information that the diagnostic classifier is picking up on. So for me, the, the exciting part was more that it supports the idea of a diagnostic classifier as something that tells you something about how the model works rather than as a practical tool. Though it could also be used as a practical tool, but I think in that case, it is not so different from multitask learning. And so you know that the model is using it because you get large gradients? Or what's the exact mechanism here? How do you know that the model is using the information from the scaffolding task or whatever you want to call it? Because if you actually try to improve the performance of the diagnostic classifier by adjusting the internal weights of the language model, then the language modeling uh, performance goes up too. Right. 
So if you try to strengthen the representation of part of the speech types, in this case, for example, your prediction of the next, next coming word becomes more accurate. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So uh, we've talked about a couple of interesting trends, interestingly uh, contradictory. We should use probing tasks and probing tasks have problems. Complementary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other, are there any other trends or anything you would highlight from like all of the papers in Black Box? It's kind of hard to summarize. I think you had 40 something papers in the workshop, but was there anything else you would bring out as like an interesting trend from, from what you saw? Yeah, quite a large number of papers were submitted on the idea that maybe we should just work on the architectures themselves to make the dynamic of the model more interpretable. For example, a particular modeling architecture which uses latent variables of some, or some explicit representation of structure, or it is trained to you know, learn some sort of explainable outcome, or some structured outcome, or some rule-based representations, then the model itself helps explaining what it's learned. So that was a very dominant trend. I, I was actually surprised at how many papers or you know, extended abstracts we got in that direction. What are the mechanisms that people use to make these claims? Is it mostly attentions or is there something else? Quite a few papers used attention mechanisms and then analyzed them, but that, that wasn't very surprising or you know novel, although the way some people dealt with it was new. Uh, but as I said, the architectures that actually incorporate some latent variables, that's the best example of this line of work, I would say. So papers that specifically try to learn, I don't know, tree structures or part of speech or some sort of latent variable which you can later then analyze and try to make sense of. Not all of them work, or as in, you know, not all of them actually improve the flat architectures, but they are much easier to explain. Uh, and some of them actually do improve uh, the performance. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess that makes learning a whole lot harder because if you have a discrete latent variable, you have problems with backpropagation. But you might gain something very useful by, by doing that. And also another line uh, that was relatively popular was to use some sort of a manipulation or pre-processing of the input data as, as an analysis tool. So what happens if we pre-process our input data in a certain way? and then feed it to the model, and then see what happens, how it affects the performance of the model, which I guess the you know, formal linguistics section also falls under this category to some extent. But there, also, uh, there were quite a few papers where, which presented a customized data set from annotated sentences for a particular type of phenomenon, which you can then use for analyzing the strengths and weaknesses of your model and what it's sensitive to and what it's not. Yeah, great. So you're doing another iteration of Black Box NLP this coming year. What conference is it going to be associated with or co-located with? With uh, ACL in uh, Florence, yeah. So what do you think are the interesting open questions that you hope people will address this year? Like we, we learned a bunch from last year. There are still things we need to figure out. What are you hoping to see? First, I should say that me and Grzegorz uh, are involved in organizing it, but most of the work uh, done by Jonathan Belenkov and Duke Hukas, who joined us this year. I think one, one thing that Jonathan highlighted is we need to have better metrics and better tools to understand how successful we were in explaining or interpreting what goes on in the network. And we are mostly at a stage where we get 
interesting visualizations and uh, tantalizing uh, qualitative results, but we need uh, to have more of a science of interpretation than we do now. So I think that that would be an important next frontier in this, in this area. And I guess uh, going back to what we said at the beginning, it's one that cognitive science might have some interesting things to say about? Uh, that is an interesting question. I uh, will need to think about it. I don't have um, a solution for this issue off the, off the top of my head. But I think that if we solve this issue in uh, artificial neural networks, it would be very useful in um, cognitive science as well, uh, especially given that artificial neural networks are just the best models we have right now for a lot of things in cognitive science um, vision and to maybe a lesser extent in language. As Afra said in the beginning, it's important for us to, to understand these models as much as it is for NLP folks and maybe even more. Uh, so let me just say something in addition to what you just said. I'm not going to be part of the organization team for the next Black Box NLP, but uh, it uh, so happened that we had some sort of a local meeting here in the Netherlands with a bunch of groups who are working on similar topics. And one idea that came up that I thought was really interesting was to have some so in a venue like this, in like Black Box NLP, uh, maybe not this one, but the one after that, because if you probably need some preparation for this, but to have some something similar to the shared tasks that other workshops have, but in a kind of an opposite format. So let's say that you have a model, a language model, that has already been optimized and trained, and then you release it and let people use their own analysis techniques to actually tell us what this model has learned. So what kinds of you know, linguistic knowledge has been encoded in this model. And then see to, to what extent the image that different kinds of approaches depict can, is consistent with each other. That might be a very interesting, you know, discussion opening or, you know, a, a framework for comparing the viewpoint of different approaches and how uh, reliable or how consistent they are. To what extent that these are, you know, complementary or actually contradictory. But I guess it needs to be fleshed out more and thought about. Yeah, that's a great point. I guess it, we're in a really interesting time in NLP these days where we have these crazy huge models that no one really understands. I don't think has ever happened before. And so it's, I guess, thank you for putting together this workshop. It's a very needed direction right now. Are there any last thoughts or something you wanted to talk about that we missed before we conclude? I can't think of anything actually. Uh, no, I think that's a... Uh... That's all I wanted to say. I would also say that it was a really fun workshop to organize and uh, that I really enjoyed all of the 50-odd papers that were presented in the, in the workshop. And I think that, well, I, one of the questions that people ask, and you, you mentioned in your email, is why have a workshop as opposed to just submit all the papers to ACL? Um, <laughs> And I think that especially when uh, with ACL becoming so large with you know, thousands of attendees and it's it just very difficult to have conversations about a shared topic. And I think that the workshop just enabled uh, those kind of conversations in the post sessions and also at the talks. And uh, that, that was a huge advantage of having a smaller and more focused uh, venue. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. This is a really interesting conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks.